Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes, and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. Today I'm here with my host, John Mixon. How are you doing, John? Great. I'm really excited because I'm a third culture kid and my kids are third culture kids, but I have read very little. Uh, so I am going to learn so much about maybe why I am who I am and what my kids are. So very excited, Dan, to be here today. Definitely. Well, yeah, John's still in my thunder, but we're talking with Ruth Van Rieken, who is one of the co-authors of Third Culture Kids. Um, John and me have both got Third Culture Kids. My kids are just starting school. John's kids are just finishing, finished school. So um, we've got different perspectives here. We're going to be, I live in Prague, but we're going to be living in Middle East and Asia for a while in the future. So, uh, and I'm English, obviously. So for me, it's interesting personally, Uh, but obviously your book is something of a sort of seminal uh, book in international school circles. So it'd be great to learn more about you uh, and your research and your life. So Ruth, thanks very much for joining. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is always a topic I care a lot about because it's personal. Um, I was born and raised in Nigeria as an American child. I raised my children in Liberia. My first granddaughter was born in Ghana. So uh, on a personal level, it's of course important to me, but then I've had about 35 years of working with it professionally, and it has just been a fabulously interesting topic. And I think it's one that's incredibly timely for the world and all that we're seeing going on around us. And so thanks for having me, and I look forward to our discussion. Great. Ruth, I mean, before we get into the book, I'm keen of like, what's, what's your, back, your like work background? What, what did you do? How did you end up traveling? And how did you end up getting in? What sort of brought you up to? I, I want to talk a bit later about how the book came about. But first of all, like, what's, you know, what was your kind of work experience? What did you do? Where did you live? Um, you won't probably believe this, but I am a registered nurse by trade. I would believe it because it's on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Believe it. No, I I certainly, I grew up in Nigeria. I always was going to go there and be a nurse and do something. You know, I always had that feeling of doing something cross-cultural. And um, my parents were with a mission organization, and so they were teachers. And so that was just sort of my assumption. And uh, I met someone who was also interested in doing medical work in Nigeria, which was the country of my birth. Unfortunately, or fortunately, when he was a medical student, we had a scholarship. And at that time, 
uh, they wouldn't to do a series overseas, you know, during one of his electives. And Nigeria would not give us a visa. And that was one of my first stunning moments of realizing that the country that I called home didn't see me in the same way. They'd been having the Biafran War, and right then they were just not granting Americans visas necessarily. So that's how we wound up in Liberia. And then when we went there later, um, they actually had Liberianized the nursing. And so they didn't really want me taking over a job from somebody else that was local. So that was another kind of stunning moment, like, wait, what am I supposed to do then? And so I wound up doing some things with international people, which I didn't even know was really a topic. But at the end of that time, of course, Liberia went through its civil war and, and uh, the coup and things. So even though I thought we would stay there all our lives, we didn't. But as we were going to repatriate, uh, our daughter came home uh, nine months ahead of us. Her grandma said, well, why don't you come home and you can stay with us and then you don't have to change schools next year. And that was all fine. But it created this great crisis in me that I finally thought, you know, all my life I've had this place that I feel a sort of a depression or a sadness that I have no reason to feel externally. And so I wanted to explore that finally. And I started to do some journaling, um, which has turned in ultimately to my first book, Letters Never Sent. But at the time I wasn't writing a book, I was just trying to understand my story. And I started with my first night in boarding school, which was when I was six. And I started to write to my parents as if I was that child. And suddenly I was that child. I could feel her and all the things that all my life I had tried not to feel because I understood, you know, I loved my life and all that. It seemed like it would be disloyal to say there were some hard places. So in that process, I began to realize the extent of loss in my life. And again, I say that loss is proportionate to how much you love. If I hadn't loved Nigeria, I wouldn't have missed it. Uh, but when I got to writing about the time of leaving, I suddenly realized that that was the day my world died when I took that airplane ride. And so that was, you know, a really big revelation to me and to do my grief work 30 years later was kind of, you know, shocking. But anyway, after that, I heard about this term TCK and that there was going to be a conference in the Philippines. And I met Dave Pollack through that and it's a long story, but that was how it moved from being my personal story into working with it as a topic and realizing um, as people, when my first uh, book came out, I heard from people all over the world saying, I thought I was the only one. And that's mm -hmm. when I thought, okay, this is more than my story. That's how it started. Fantastic. And sorry, John. So this is the third edition of your book. So I assume when you first wrote it, as you said, people were suddenly like, oh my goodness me, that's me. So it really was quite uh, seminal in the sense that you were really addressing this topic that maybe was floating around, but you put a name to it and then really identified some of the, the dispositions and, and kind of attitudes and values associated with that. So really, in some ways, you trailblazed this idea. Well, I have to give credit to those whose shoulders I was standing on. Ruth, you've seen was the first sociologist to put this name on it. That was in the 50s. She went with her husband to India and she wanted to study with him how people from different cultures did business together.
but she became much more interested in the children of the expats. And she thought there's something different about them than the kids I'm teaching back at Michigan State. But actually, this whole topic in a way began in the international school. It began in the 30s. Alan Parker did his master's. He was the principal of Woodstock School in India. And he was already noticing something about these kids. So anyway, Dr. Yassim named us in, uh, well, 1960 was the first article that really came out. Dave Pollack went to Kenya in the 70s and he worked in an international school. And he had that same experience of realizing that these kids were different than the youth he had worked with back in the States. And Norma McCaig had been a TCK and she called it global nomads. So there was this group of people who were feeling something was going on and they were starting to name what they were seeing. And so Dave Pollock had developed this profile, but he went around the world school by school trying to explain it. Um, Ruth Yusim had told me, she said, well, it's not my job to you know, explain it. My job is to study it. But Dave was the one who took it to the masses in a sense and kept having this experience, the aha moment. All these people would hear it and think, oh my goodness, you know, you've just told my life story. But then one day, it's a long story, you know, we'd have many conversations and, and this developed out of conversations with people who lived it, people who were thinking about it. And we had great fun just trying to think about it. And I said to him one day, Dave, you need to write this because people are starting to write about this. I saw something in Wall Street Journal, something someplace else. I said, they're quoting you, but it's really what you, the work you're doing. But he was having a hard time getting people to understand it. Even back at Michigan State, when Ruth Hussein went back, people didn't really believe in it as a topic. Anyway, Dave was, you know, believing in it. He was doing it. And I said, you need to write. And he said, well, I don't have time. And so I said, well, I could help you because, you know, how hard could that be? He's got it all developed. And then when we sent it to the publisher, the only people who would take it was intercultural press because nobody else believed it was still a topic. This was in the you know mid nineties. So when we sent it to them, they said, well, we're an academic publisher. You can't just describe it. You have to explain it. Why? I thought, I have no idea why it just happens. So that <laughs> became me and I have a mind that always asks the why question. So that became kind of fun to really listen and try to figure out why does this happen? Why is it we had one of the first things was delayed adolescence. But if you think about the developmental process where kids in a traditional way would be in one place and everybody has the same culture and everybody kind of reinforces it, a child has a strong sense as they develop of who they are, where they're going, how life is. But if you keep switching and you keep moving, you have to keep starting over in that process. You have to keep relearning how the, what are the rules here. And so it's not that we can't learn in the end or something's deficient, it's just a different process. And that was the thing that, you know, um, what are the losses? Because um, it's a series of losses. Every time you move, you're losing. But then the losses are hidden. They're not obvious losses. And so many people went to therapists and the therapists, you know, couldn't figure it out because they didn't see this world that was invisible. So that was the fun part. It was a lot of work, uh, but it was wonderful work because every time I, it was explaining to me my own story too. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, what um, could you, so, I mean, obviously a lot of people listen to this have not read the book, but they have heard the, the term, it's kind of widely known term. Could you give us like, um, 
I mean, I don't know how, how easy it's to still it, but like a synopsis of a book, like how would you describe the broad theme uh, of, of the book and, and, and what actually happens with, with third culture kids? Well, first, in case somebody doesn't seem to know what a third culture kid is, I would call at this point a traditional third culture kid because we're starting to refine our language a little bit. Uh, are those that Ruth Eusene first studied, somebody who accompanies their parents into another culture because of a parent's work. Now, there's lots of ways that kids, you know, go that way now, but that would be the traditional third culture kid, that they spend a significant part of their early developmental years outside of their parents' passport culture. The reason that's important is because of the period of development. That's when you learn language, you learn culture, you learn identity, you learn belonging. And a lot of parents think that, oh, well, I've done the same thing, you know, that my kids have done, you know, like you, Dan, maybe I grew up one place, but now I'm raising kids and I'm experiencing life with them, which you are. But my mother never doubted that she was from Chicago or that she was an American or anything like that because she'd grown up in one place in one neighborhood and so forth. So no matter that she was 34 years in Nigeria, that was never a question. For me, um, she said once, well, until you did this crazy work, I thought you were from Chicago too. I said, mom, think about it. I'm born in Africa, my whole life I'm raised there. I'm not identifying, you know, with this thing. So parents, my developmental process in terms of identity was different than my mother's, even though she lived in Africa with me. So parents need to understand that this is part of the, the reason that it's important is that it's happening when a child is developing. Their sense of identity, their sense of self and, and all these things. So that's who a TCK is. In the book, we start out with a story of Erica, who uh, grew up as a business kid in Singapore. And it's, it's a real story. It's a different name. But you know, we asked her if we could tell her story. And she felt Singapore was home. And of course, then she goes back to the States. And for most people, the time of reentry is difficult because you're supposed to be, I was supposed to be American at 13 when I came back to the States. But I didn't know who Elvis was. I didn't know how the clothes were. I didn't know how sports were. I didn't know any of the cultural things I was supposed to know. So then people think, you know, what's the matter? So it's her story of the typical TCK who tries to fit back in. And then she went back to Singapore thinking, well, I'm from Singapore, really, so I'll be okay. But going back as an adult was not the same thing. And so she was caught between the two worlds, which is the story for so many of us. So that's the beginning. And then we try and go through... Uh, not only who are third culture kids, but the last um, few years, as we talked about this, so many people said to me, I didn't do it your way, but I, I relate to everything you're saying. And why? And so I put another term for that, cross-cultural kids, people who've been raised among many cultural worlds for any reason, and that would include TCKs. And so that's kind of an evolving thing right now. How do we how do we look at the big picture? But I want to say for international school people, you have a lot of local kids coming to your school now. And they're also cross-cultural kids. They're what I would call uh, educational CCKs or TCKs. Because when they come to a school like that and they go back to their environment and, you know, in a neighborhood, they have had a totally different experience culturally than the kids who are going to the local schools. And so that's another thing of great interest to me. How do we put that together? So then we have that sort of introductory phase, why cross-cultural childhood matters and why high mobility, because those are the two hallmarks 
that we have mobility is high mobility. If I'm not going, my best friend is going. So my life is always in a flux in a certain sense. Most TCKs are. And so it's that first section is the introduction of setting the scene. The next section is about the third culture kid profile. This is the work that Dave did, particularly in identifying the common characteristics that you can have a large worldview and you don't know your own culture, that you can have lots of relationships and yet they keep, you know, they're, they're in flux all the time. There's a lot of rootlessness and restlessness among us because kids are so used to moving that it's almost like I have to move to stay somebody. And um, so that's another, that's another issue. And that can also be very detrimental to a person's career, or it could be helpful that you're willing to move. But kids sometimes, you know, move when they don't have to, or they have a hard time even finishing university at one point. And also, you know, what it's like to um, come back and the reentry and all these things that are very common in our story. Then we talk about um, grief and loss and identity. That's some of the beginning, but we, we go through then some of the issues of how does the... Um, how does the internet work? How do all those things, how is, what are some of the impacts of the change? That certainly has come more in our later editions. And then in this last edition, Michael Pollock, who was Dave Pollock's son, Dave died in 2004. <clears throat> and so Michael has been an educator overseas. And of course he grew up with this topic. So he added some wonderful pieces about what schools can do, what organizations can do, what parents can do, some how-to chapters for the people that work with TCKs. So that's the essence. And then the last chapter we threw in this time is the vision we see for the future, how far we still have to go. Wow. A big time. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. John, I'm sure you got, I'm just gonna jump into one topic, but John, you jump in and everyone's. I mean, what's interesting for me, John and me are both tech guys, you know, and, and the online communities and the internet, how much is that changing me? I'll just tell you from sort of my perspective is like, I'm involved in a lot of online communities, different things, you know, with a lot of international school educators, with entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur in sort of a, you know, I guess I'd tech sort of space. And, and I've got one group I'm a member of, and we meet up in different countries. I'm actually meet up in Mexico in, uh, in, in October. We normally meet in Bangkok. And so, like, we've actually got this, like, you know, cross-cultural group of, of similar-minded people, and, we, and we, we're in touch daily, you know? But we're all from different countries and, and a lot of different ethnic backgrounds and countries. And, and that's, I wonder if that online way is leading to a different sense of you, you've got your physical place where you, where you live, but then you've got much more of an online place where you live as well. Well, I think certainly the last two years has made a huge reality because suddenly I went from traveling um, and going to individual schools and individual people and you know, fun. I had five trips canceled when COVID hit and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, my life is over. But uh, as it's turned into podcasts and broadcasts and things, you know, you do reach a different group of people. But one really interesting thing, uh, we started a group called Families and Global Transition in 1999, uh, I guess, in Indianapolis here, because we felt like the world was coming here and people here didn't see it. Well, it's a long story how that has evolved and people far more gifted than I am have taken it over. But this past year, of course, it was all online as 
all the conferences were. And I thought, how is this ever going to work? Because part of our intensity is being together and so forth. But they did a wonderful job of having group chats all through the weekend. And we would, like we all lived in our computers. And it was incredibly enriching because we had more people could come. People didn't have to spend their money. And I thought, wow, you know, we miss the coffee hours. But they, they really made up for it in a wonderful way. And I met new people. And I thought, wow, this is a different way. And uh, it's efficient. Uh, we're not sitting in airports all the time. So certainly this is changing. But the other thing that even changed a little bit, I should say, is Dave went everywhere trying to, you know, get the topic going. But it was when somebody made the first tckid.com uh, way back group. And all of a sudden, I think they had like 20,000 people. Suddenly it became an available topic if you weren't at the schools David went to. So I credit the internet. And of course, now there's a hundred million, you know, different podcasts and things out there. If you just do TCK or TCK, you'll find all these groups. And certainly that has increased incredibly much the awareness and the place where people find out they're not alone and they have their aha moments. And, you know, you see the same things. And then, um, you know, it's also going to the next level with, uh, TCKs of Asia have their podcast now and and uh, talking about things that I never knew about, you know, how it is to do language. I mean, just it's, you're right. Technology is transforming this topic. Definitely, but I guess not just a topic, but, but you know, third culture online, you know, you can have a different culture online to, to that, which I think is fascinating, but that's really interesting. Yeah. John, John, so. <laughs> No, I, I, Ruth, it's so interesting listening to you because my father's American, my mom's Swiss, uh, and I lived in three different countries in Europe. I've lived in nine countries uh, to this date. And I went to the Swiss schools, and even though I spoke fluent French and had a Swiss passport, I never really fit in because I had this American father. And this was in the 70s, so it was a different dynamic then. And then uh, at 18, I went to Cleveland, Ohio, to university at Kent. And I landed there and I sounded like an American, but as you said, I knew nothing about the TV stations, the culture, the food. And it's just so interesting to hear you identify that because when I experienced it, I just thought, ah, don't really know what's going on. And it's, I think I think that process and your book, especially for, I'm thinking my own two children, I think that's a really important point of reference for kids to develop some clarity on maybe what they're feeling and what they're going through. Because I think my generation that were third culture kids, that was nothing. And it, was, it wasn't even a topic. I don't even remember people, even though we spoke French, German, and English in the home and lived in England, Germany, Switzerland. Uh, it, it, yeah. So I just think a book like this and this work actually has a very positive impact on I'm just thinking my son and daughter that have lived in six different countries and never really lived in their passport country. They have a Swiss and American passport. Uh, so I just really find that personally very interesting. And I can see how those groups that you're talking about, the online groups, really become a powerful venue for people to kind of synthesize what they're feeling and create some identity, not cultural identity, but just identity with what's going on. And I think I really applaud all that work that's going on because I think that's the challenge uh, for my two children is they're really not sure where home is. Mm -hmm. 
And even though we have a place in Switzerland, they go back to California to see uh, their maternal relatives. It just doesn't, it's not home and it's never home. And so home becomes where the family unit is, where mom and dad are together. It could be anywhere. It could be at a Sheraton or at a hotel, it could be in a campsite. So I think I hear more and more of that. And I'm just wondering if you think in this process, home has changed and that people then gravitate to their families or their connections to make that strength more than the physical location. Well, John, I think you could write the book now. So <laughs> I'm not writing a book. Dan, we're writing a book. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we'll do an audio book. Yeah, <laughs> what the story is, is that uh, you were saying, Dan, it was interesting. You said there was a third culture online. I thought this third culture really is the shared experience. It's not just amalgamating, you know, that I have Africa and America. It's this experience I share. Culture has to be shared. And this experience of living in between is what we share with each other. So it's interesting you were saying that, you know, we have the online third culture. I have to think about that. That's another piece for my brain today. But yeah. what you're talking about, John, there's two things. First, um, your story is part of the development of the increased cultural complexity that is going on today. When I grew up, most of the kids had parents from the same country. Now, my father happened to be a TCK who grew up in Iran. So he was American, but you know, usually we would, most TCKs had parents from the same country and so forth. In today's world, um, that's not so. So you're already an example of in the very home, you have multiple cultures in your home. And when you go visit your grandparents, you probably use different languages. So the world is really enlarging in that way, it's becoming more complex. But my goal and my desire, my passion in life is to normalize what we feel. Because the biggest thing for so many of us is that we thought, what's wrong with me? I'm 13, I don't know what's happening. Okay, what's wrong with me? And that was my feeling, like something's the matter with me. I, I can't figure this out. So when I went to high school, I didn't tell anybody that I'd ever been anywhere out of the country because I didn't want to be you know, weird. And when you came back and you thought, you know, well, that's just the way it is, but it's still that feeling of what's the matter with me. When we can get language and understanding for this concept, and this is what it's all about, and that's why schools are doing transition programs. So, you know, the whole issue of how do we do transition well? So you can say goodbye, so you can move on to the next place without all the losses just kind of, you know, ruminating someplace. When we normalize it, then we can use it. The gifts are also many. But many people get caught in the challenges of what's the matter with me, then depression, and feeling like, you know, I, I just can't figure life out. But once we understand, and that's why these groups are so important too, because they they find out, oh, I'm not the only one. Other people felt that, you know, like that. And you ask about where is home, that's the cardinal question. When I say to somebody, where are you from? and they can't answer, then I think, well, I know I've got one. I mean, my husband says, how do you find all these people? And I say, you know, it depends how they answer my question. But also the issue of where is home is, that's even more than where you're from because home is an internal place of belonging, you know, that sense that this is, this is where I really belong. And for some, you know, that really becomes a stress. And number one, I think you're right. Many find that place of belonging in relationships and with their parents, home is wherever my parents are, is a common answer. 
But I've also found that I am at home in many places now. I feel at home when I get off the airplane in Africa and I smell home. And I feel at home here in Indianapolis now that I lived here for a long time because this is where my kids relate. And I feel at home in Chicago. So, but I feel particularly at home in the international community. When I travel and I get there, I don't even know the people, but I feel at home because it's a way of life that I know. And I realized this is a place I belong. Other people belong to their communities. But once I really understood that, that I have a place that is my community, even though it's very disparate and it's very global and I don't see everybody, um, it gave me space to realize that back here in Indianapolis, I don't know all about my neighbors' communities, you know, things like that, but we can be neighbors. But I don't have to insist that people see this life that I have that, you know, I can't explain. <laughs> it's interesting, like this sense of belonging, because to take me as an example, it's interesting. I'm very, very different background to John. I grew up in rural Yorkshire in Northern England. Uh, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I had a great, a great childhood. My parents were great. You know, we did a lot of cool stuff, but we didn't really travel. And I never felt at home there. I never felt uh, I really belonged to that community. And again, nothing bad about it. I just didn't. Feel I ever fitted in there and then as soon as I got to 18 went to university I've, I've been a third culture adult and I don't know if that's a thing yeah, but ever a- since I've just traveled oh and I, and I don't think that'll ever stop you know like I, I look you know I haven't even told John but we're going to be moving for a bit in, in November I, I've always lived abroad you know and I, I can honestly never see myself going back to Yorkshire apart from to see my family and I'm my experience is like John I mean John's children's experience I think is my home is where my wife and my kids are you know my kids are young but that's that's my family I've got friends here in Czech Republic, I've got friends in America, in Asia, uh, in England. And, and like you said, there's, I've got a few kind of bases, but I, I feel, it's a cheesy phrase, but I do, I do feel like a global citizen. Like I'm not like a globalist or anything, but I, I feel like a home, I feel more at home visiting a new country than I do in the place I come from, you know? No, I really appreciate that, Dan, because I guess the thing I forgot to say was nobody's experience is universal. My sister bought a home when she came back to say she when she got married she's been in the same one 55 years and you know so we all have our different responses and I think there's also something of course the individual people like you for whatever reason there are people who even as children always wanted to travel or they wanted to be out so we need to acknowledge that and another study that hasn't been done if enough yet, but is on the books is third culture adults, what you're saying, people who make that first trip later, how does that relate to the third culture experience, the third culture kid experience? And so those are all things. This topic is like limitless right now, as far as the research and what needs to be understood. But I feel like the TCK topic was sort of like a Petri dish where maybe for the first time, a topic was studied that was transnational, that it was trans ethnicity, transracial, you know, in the sense that people who've done it were from all these different backgrounds, but they shared something. And it, that was the first knock on it. Like, well, how can you say that people from all these places share something when, you know, that's not, in fact, I had one sociologist said, if you can prove that you'll change the face of sociology because it's not supposed to be that way. But on the emotional spaces of life, if we think about who people are, people need to be relational. People are emotional. People are creative. You know, what is the essence of being human? When we move, uh, we, we lose relationships and everybody will feel it, even if they gain on the other side. You know, you can, 
So there's this emotional space that we share. Uh, and the biggest issues that have to be figured out for most TCKs, and maybe for you too, Dan, if you didn't fit where you were, is who am I? What's my identity? And I think we start to find that when we we have something in our last latest book about anchors and mirrors, that we learn that in relationship to those who are around us. And you know, if it keeps switching, that's one of the reasons it's complicated. Yep. But we have the identity question, and then we have the loss question. And so the and the attachment, you know, all these things are part of it. But the the effects of cross-culturalness and the effects of mobility, usually people wind up feeling coming to some sort of terms with who am I, you know, like, okay, well, it's okay that I don't fit in place because I have this other world I fit in. The place where I see people really caught up the most is when they don't know how to do the grief. They didn't know how to do, that was my story, but I see people still depressed or they can be very angry, you know, anger is part of grief when they're in their 50s and 60s and they're still kind of pushing out relationships because one of the things that happens when you keep losing relationships is you decide not to engage and people can engage to a certain level but this really can impact those close relationships we all want to have and so it's part of the work is helping people understand why they may push people away when they don't want to and how can we work with that so we can invite people in and, and be fully who we are and that we can engage in this incredible, I mean, we, we have incredible gifts as well. I mean, I love traveling. I love the world. I love all kinds of things that are interesting to me. But um, if I'm living in internal de depression, I'm never going to be able to engage both to live for myself, but, you know, to use who I am. And so that's why I feel so strongly. I just believe there are so many gifts, but I've seen people be very caught in the questions of where do I belong, where's identity, and every human has a need to belong. So if we can help each other that way, uh, we we have a lot of fun. It's interesting that you talk about uh, this gift and the grief and relationships because being an international school educator, I've noticed we do a lot of celebrations and acknowledgement of kids leaving, but there are a lot of kids that are there constantly and all they see is a, a turnstile of kids leaving. And there's not often a reflection about, well, what about this kid that now has had his fifth best friend leave in his yeah. time? And I think that's really uh, quite a challenge. The other thing that I, I would be curious to hear your opinion on is international schools love doing what they call UN Day. UN Day is where the kids march around and they have to pick a flag and a costume and then they walk around. And it's a costume and flag that represents their country. And I know that my two own children found that very challenging because, yeah, they could yodel maybe and they could wear a cowboy hat. But it, it, it's, it's that where sometimes international schools, I think, that's the challenge that we face is how do we accommodate, say, for example, Dan's kids. Dan is not a third culture kid, but he's a third culture adult. And now his kids go into school. You know, how do you navigate that to support parents and students with this identity that's so fluid? And I find that quite a challenge. I'm just curious. What do you think schools can do to support that? 
Well, you bring up two huge, huge uh, issues. So let me take first the, the stayers. That's what we call them, those who stay. I don't know if you've heard yet about safe passage across network. Dan Ota, uh, Doug Ota, sorry, I'm looking at your name, Dan. Doug Ota was a counselor at the American School of The Hague and through a Shell Oil grant and other things, they developed a very strong transition program for the school. He has written a book called Safe Passage, which is how schools can set up strong transition programs. He has also developed an organization now, which is, is just taking off of training people, training schools, because his view is if you have a really good program in your school for how do you do transition well, not just for the kids that are leaving, but for those who are staying, you're absolutely right. Some of the most damage is the kids who never got to go and only see the lost. Like one said to me, she said, especially the kids of the educators often are them, you know, that I never had the fun of going. All I had was the pain of losing. Yep. And so part of the story is exactly what you've identified. So Doug's vision would be that one day schools could be certified as transition friendly schools, that they would take this program and they're just getting it off the ground now. Um, disclosure, I guess I'm on the board, so that's, I, I'm supposed to say something, but I really, really, really believe in this. And Doug, Doug is doing his PhD this year on attachment in transition, in international schools and studying the kids, what really happens in the attachment theories and where our attachment places are when there's always this coming and going. So he's going to have some great data for us shortly. Uh, but if you don't know that, if anybody who's listening doesn't know about Safe Passage as a book, and also uh, it spans schools.org on the internet. And uh, they are going to be developing training programs. So people from schools can send, you know, there are people there to be trained in how do you do a, an effective transition program? Because as Dave always quotes Doug Pollock, uh, sorry, Doug always quotes Dave Pollock, that if you don't leave right, you can't enter right. So a good goodbye means a good hello. And so his, his thing is, if you could get a lot of schools doing the same basic program, like an IB program would be academically, then when kids leave one place and go to the next place, they're received into that fold of good transition. So that's something that's on the horizon. If people aren't aware of it yet, they need to be. Um, so that was your we'll put that in the show notes, Ruth. Thank you for that uh, lead. We'll definitely put that on the show notes for our audience, the safe passage in Dagada's work. Thank you. So um, that was your first question. Now, your second question was about not stairs. What was your second question? It's about the UN day. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'm 76. I'm having a little trouble. <laughs> um, so on the UN day, I mean, I hear the stories all the time. Which do I pick? Or somebody's parents get mad because the kid doesn't pick their passport culture. And so if you're a parent listening, you know, don't be mad because the kid may feel more affinity for something else. So for some of the kids, you know, it's hard. And um, in the TCKs of Asia podcast, which I sent you the link for also, they have mixed loyalties is one of their discussions. How do I even know where I fit? But far more than that, what bothers me in the diversity programs and all this, you know, loud dida is they only go to the visible. They only look at the 
uh, food. They only look at the flags. They only look at the costumes. Who's looking at the deeper parts of culture? And who's understanding that what Danao Tanu taught me, who has been part of the TCKs of Asia, but she did her PhD work in the Asian TCKs. And her book is called Growing Up in Transit. And every international school should read those, that book as well. Danao came to me about 10 years ago and she said, you guys say that you're so um, global and you're so aware, you know, and we have a large worldview. She said, that's really not true. I said, why? She said, I'm Asian. Her mom is from Japan. Her dad is Indonesian. She went to an international school. She said, I had to be Western by day to fit in ah. because the school was Western. And she said, nobody at school knew who I was when I went home. Interesting. My parents did not want me to ask questions. You know, you're in this IV, it's all question and, you know, and you go home and you ask questions like that, you're in trouble. She said, nobody knew who I was when I went home. So I've started asking when I done international schools in pre-COVID days or pre-life days, I found out kids don't ever want to be told who they are. Okay, so I always ask for a panel representing the different kids in the school, culturally, background-wise, whatever, like a stayer, I mean, a local kid, somebody from whatever their dominant groups are. I ask them simple questions. Tell me your passport. It's always interesting how many they have, how many languages. Then I say, you know, so what do you like best about this? They give me the profile. What do you, what's the hardest? I mean, they always, they can tell you, you just can't tell them. That's fine. So I've learned to say, what is different for you when you're at school and when you go home? It is unbelievable, you know, what the kids say. And I thought it's really true. We don't understand because they have to be Western. I mean, they have to, they learn to accommodate to our culture and we assume that's who they are. So for Danao, she said, she started to develop a self-induced racism that if she had just been white, she would have been okay. And of course that's a terrible thing. So this is in an international school where everybody thinks that they're very global and we're IB and we can all, and I'm sure she could put on her costume and she could wear it. But what does that do for her inside? You still don't see her. So one of the great challenges, I think, for international schools now is developing an awareness of the deeper places of where we, um, who we are. Yes, we're together as TCKs, but we still come from different, you know, backgrounds. And one of the stories that's on the TCK is of Asia podcast is Isabel Min talking about she, all she wanted was a red lunchbox because she was a diplomat's kid from Korea. And all the American kids, all the Western kids had metal lunch boxes and she had to bring hers in a bag. And the day that somehow she found, you know, I think she still has her little red lunch box. And the stories, because these podcasts have been just people sharing their stories, sort of investigating what, how this group feels, or, you know, people who are not Western and have different languages. And um, anyway, she, they all had a lunchbox story of what it was they wanted so they could be normal in the school. I mean, it's very powerful. And then another girl, Aiko, who's getting her PhD, was talking about when she came to the States and went to a local school. But see, this could be an international school too. And her parents got called. She didn't speak English, of course. And her parents got called because she wasn't participating in gym. And they said, well, you know, language is one thing, but gym is gym. 
So her mother came to school and anyway, they started gym class. And so her mother said, Eiko, why aren't you playing in gym? And Eiko had no idea this was gym because in Japan, they did exercises, they changed uniforms, they went to a special place for gym. And these kids didn't change and they were, they just pushed the uh, tables back and they were running around in the cafeteria. And she kept trying to figure out why these kids are running around the cafeteria. <laughs> her background had a different story about what Jim was. And these are the kind of stories that the uniform doesn't tell. The food doesn't tell. You know, and even more than that, if I may go another couple of places, how we do schooling. You know, kids learn by rote in many countries. And so when they come to international schools, and this whole thing is about IB and all that, that's great, but it's a different style of learning. And it's a different way of learning, let alone, you know, um, that kids in, I was in one school and there was a whole Korean contingent that had just come because of the plant that had just come to that country. So the kids were learning English and all these things. And so in that school, they were saying to the kids, you can't speak Korean to each other, which is another story. But there was a friction going on between the Korean parents and the American educators. And so when we were having a discussion about it, it turned out that the kids were going home and saying to the parents that the American teachers didn't know anything. And you know why? Every time they asked him a question, the American teacher said, what do you think? <laughs> and if they had known, they would have told him. <laughs> So the interpretation of how we educate can be profoundly different. And even one Canadian Japanese teacher in international school said she had trouble while she was in a Japanese school, having kids switch their papers to critique each other, you know, when you have a writing assignment and you make comments, because culturally you don't criticize. So all of these things have to be taken into account in a way the international schools didn't have to do before because if you had an American school, you probably had mostly American kids. If you had a Japanese school, be, you know, Japanese. But I think there's just this whole realm of cultural understanding that we need to do for each other that really would make us richer, all of us richer, but also would help the kids and so forth. So anyway, that's my soapbox for today. Fascinating. Have you have you read a book uh, by Pico Iyer called The Global Soul? I don't know if you've heard of this book. Yes, and um, he came to one of our family global transition conferences, and I came to two of them actually. And I think what he was shocked was to find this whole group of people that understood him. When he told his story, you know, usually it's just really radical stories. And uh, no, he's wonderful. And I actually, he, I actually, John, if you haven't read any of his books, uh, video. I have. On yeah, video night in Kathmandu. Video nights in Kathmandu for me was that was my entry into Pico Air and a lot of those third culture writers. Yeah, yeah. I actually read a book when I was traveling around uh, after university. I was, I was in Kathmandu, funnily enough. I've got the knockoff version they sell in. But, but it was interesting because in the Global Soul, I, it's a long time since I've read it, probably 20 years. But he talks about like there's almost this. We talk a lot, we're talking now about cultures, you know, that we've got a culture of America and a culture of whatever, but there's almost like a global kind of middle-class culture, and this is specifically with international schools. The kids who go there, grow up, you know, they might live in Bangkok, they might live in Ghana, somewhere like but they're not in the local culture. They're in, they're in a, a lot of kids of foreign business people, wealthy local people, 
um, people working for NGOs and governments abroad. So they, 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 this this kind of culture kind of almost becomes their, their host culture in a way. I don't know what, what you think about that. Well, that's really the third culture. It's yeah. it's not what you were at home in your passport culture, and it's not it's the not host a culture. culture. Yeah, yeah. It's that in-between space between the two, but it's the space that you share with other people who are living it like you. Yeah. That's really what the third culture is. So one of the problems or surprises for kids, they've gone to these different schools. In international schools, it's normal to have new kids, kids coming and going, and this is our culture, the way we're doing our lives. And so when kids go back, they may think, you know, oh, I've been in all these countries, I know all these things. But then when they go back to a school, uh, a local school, like in whatever country they're from, and most of the kids aren't used to that kind of travel, it's harder to find your way in. It's harder because those kids have their groups where in our international schools, in a way, the groups are always forming. But um, another thing that you should know in an international school is that when a child enters this kind of a lifestyle in high school or junior high, it's the same kind of re-entry that we had going back to our passport culture because they don't know this lifestyle. Yeah. Suddenly their parents take them. And then uh, there's a terrific, terrific uh, video. It's 20 minutes. It got the Oscar nomination. It's called uh, The Road Home. It was one of the last 10 in the Oscar shorts in 2012. And, you know, this kid has grown up in England. He's an Indian and his parents sent him back to India to go to school so that he can be, you know, Indian, but it's an international school and he doesn't fit. I mean, he, he runs away and it's a, it's a marvelous film just in terms of identity. But um, I showed that to a group of TCKs once I said, okay, so who do you identify with? And they said, the bullies, the other kids at the school. And I said, I mean, I was surprised it was like, and I said, why? They said, well, we had a girl that came like that. And she she refused to be part of us. She didn't like it. She was kept talking about being at home. So we finally decided, well, then fine. If you don't like us, we won't like you. And so, <laughs> you know, that, that we have to realize it is that much of a culture. And kids who know it, know it. But when somebody comes for the first time as as a teenager, as a junior higher, it's a new, it's a new world for them. And yeah. so uh, it's not so easy sometimes. Ruth, when you uh, have seen in your experiences and through the writing and research is, have you noticed a pattern of third culture kids generally getting into relationships with other third culture kids? And then they tend to propagate that by being third culture with their own kids is there a pattern because there's that comfort zone i'm more comfortable not being attached to somewhere have you been is that is that something that is noticed or is it really kind of not enough of a pattern to say that's a pattern well i think it certainly is talked about a lot and i think most uh, many tck's do marry somebody that's got some kind of a background uh, I mean, you should marry somebody that at least is willing to think about your story. You know? um, and so I think that there are some TCKs that said, nobody can ever understand me if they're not a TCK. Well, I'm so different, nobody can understand me. That's not healthy because we're still human beings and our story came within the context. I tell people this is not your identity. 
it's your experience. And so if you think about your experience of cultural displacement, other people have that. You know, you can identify if you think about loss. So there should be some place where on an emotional basis, people can share. But a lot of TCKs do marry somebody of at least some kind of background, or they marry somebody who's not from their nationality. You know, they uh, marry a French person if they're from the States, or they marry somebody that's more international. On the other hand, there's people like uh, my sister, and she married somebody who grew up monoculturally, and they've lived in this one house for 55 years, and yet they like to travel, and they took foster kids in. I mean, there were a lot of things they did that were whatever. And then their their daughter works, her husband worked for the State Department, so her daughter's been the one who's done the uh, third culture lifestyle. So it's kind of there. And um, my daughter married somebody who's more local. But um, when my granddaughter was five, she said to me, Grandma, I'm going to travel with you one day. And she might have been like you, Dan. So she grew up in Indianapolis, and she chose to go to university in Spain. Because she said, I got to see the world here. I got to get out of here. I got I to gotta go. So she's going to university in Spain. And I always thought people from there came here. But I thought, well, I guess you can go there, too. She's had a fabulous time. Um, so the TCK rootness for something seems to be generationally uh, propagated. But I've, John, uh, I've actually got a question for you, interestingly. Um, some, some advice for me, I guess, because you're uh, obviously you're kids are a bit further down the line, your, your children are third culture kids and a huge number of your friends, nothing specific about your kids, but you, if your friends generally have third culture kids. So would you say when you look at that huge sort of group of all your friends who've, who've grown up in, with kids in a similar environment, would you say the children generally view it as positive or would you say, because uh, for me, it's like a dream childhood, but uh, would you say it's generally positive, generally negative, or, or is it kind of all over the place in terms of how children view. I know it's a big question, but what, what, do you have any general thoughts? I on think it's. I think I'm going to talk about myself because I grew up in uh, in Nyon, which is a sub is a town outside of Geneva. My dad was a UN diplomat, and everybody I interacted with in my town, a big percentage were multicultural: Portuguese, yeah. Italian father, or whatever, because of the UN and the international organizations. But there was not that label, and it was kind of just that's the way it is. And then when we went off to universities and I went to a boarding school in England, there were many more kids like that. I think with my own two children, I think it's not, it's because, I don't know, I think it's harder. And why, I don't know. And we've, you know, I've talked to many students that are, have experienced what I have in, in international schools. And I think there's more of a creative tension. There's more introspection than maybe I had. And then I think of some of my contemporaries uh, because there, it wasn't, it wasn't labeled. It was, it was just like, well, that's the way things are. And maybe we didn't reflect on it while now, I don't know. That's such a tough question. And I hate to uh, generalize, no, no, no. And, you know, but I, I, I know, for example, my children and their cohort of international school, third culture, there is much more creative tensions. There's more questioning and there's more inner angst, if I can say that. And I'm not, I don't want to overgeneralize, but it's just some yeah, yeah. little things I've noticed. And if I think of my brother and sister and myself and our contemporaries, I don't think we talk about it as much as maybe now international schools are with their kids. And Ruth, I don't know. I, I really, this is a personal, so to the audience, I'm not overgeneralizing. I'm just taking no, no, no. anecdotes I, I, it was from a my, question, you know? 
Yeah. And that could probably yeah. be because I guess just that, that as generations go on, there is, you know, I guess when we grew up, there was people did question things less, I guess. I mean, you might've done internally, but it wasn't, you didn't discuss things as openly as people do now, which is a huge benefit of times now. Yeah. Ruth, what, what, what do you think? Ruth? Well, I think for a long time, I said, I really hadn't met one person who was sorry for it. Um, I think there are some people now who are saying, um, I mean, that we went through our trials and tribulations, but in terms of the ultimate gift, um, of this experience and what it gave us and, and how it shaped our lives would be positive. Also, I mean, in an ultimate sense. But I think that, like for me, I didn't even understand my story until later. And it doesn't mean I was sorry for it. It just means that I had to process it. But I think one thing that's happening is there's way more mobility now. I don't know there, like you said, we were in groups. Like I was always either in the States or in Nigeria. Kids now are 10, 11, 12 schools sometimes, you know, depending on where they've been. And the world has got more angst because there's a lot more, I don't know, just um, how do we fit in? The world doesn't even know where it is. I think part of what's going on in the world is that because people there's so much globalization, there's so much travel, there's so much mixing without really understanding the deeper places that people are pulling away from each other um, in all these countries because they're trying to find who I am by who I'm not. I'm not you. I'm, I'm you know, trying to hang on to yeah. And so yeah. that I'm sure trickles down into the TCK community. And plus, I think in our communities, probably there's more divorce, there's more family issues because of the way the world is. Whereas in the old days, um, most people that I would know in this international thing had intact families, not all, but you know, that whole thing that the changes in the world are impacting the TCK community too, in terms of, I think there's a global crisis of identity and um, belonging and things like this. That it's, it's interesting what you said about kind of almost a velocity of, of moving around. I mean, this is a, re a really recent trend. I'd say I'd say three to five years, uh, the whole digital nomad movement. I don't know how much you know about that, but it's in my entrepreneur group. I've got a, I know a lot of good friends who they're nomadic now because of online work and because you can kind of, you know, and, and COVID has you know, even accelerated that everyone knows they can work online. And, and, and these people are starting to have kids now and they're just, they might spend three months in somewhere, six months somewhere else. And this, I'm curious to see down the line what this effect is. You know, a lot of them have young kids, so they're not at school yet. But I know one or two people who are homeschooling or putting their kids in and, in and out of schools. But they just, it's like we'll spend winter in the Alps and then we'll we'll go to Asia for the summer. You know, like it's an, it's an interesting model. I don't know what you've, how much you know about this movement and, and what you think of it in terms of your research. Just hearing, you know, what you're saying in that, my my gut is that ultimately kids have to have some place to settle. I mean, you can't just keep uprooting people um, because part of development is the interaction we have with our world around yeah. us. And so when that keeps changing, then how do you refine yourself? And so you can find your identity, I suppose, as a nomad, but the human soul wants connection. Yeah. It does want connection. So somewhere you yeah, it does want connection. So somewhere you have to have connection. And so maybe these families have extreme connection with themselves. I mean, that it can be one place, but you have to have some place as a human being.
that you feel connected and belonging or your life is like floating and you know um and maybe that's part of what's happening in the world but i think that you know when the kids are little the world is their family anyway but things yeah. like you know the sights and smells and all these things are part of home and place is part of home place is part of our identity how we how we interact with place and our parents helping us learn these skills and the community helping us and you know you've got to be somewhere connected to community so you know it may be fine for a while but i would think that at some point parents should settle long enough to give their kids some kind of stability in a place in a community in something um that's one reason we tell people that if they can when they repatriate or when they go back on their leaves and stuff to go back maybe they don't have their own house but to go back to that same place so that you know there's some sense that this is my portuguese home or my american home or my english home or whatever and then i have this other place so i think it's a great idea for the parents are having a great time but i'd be careful long term with the kids yeah and, I, and i'm curious if it's even going to go on long term because it's such a new thing like i was saying but I, I, and again mo the majority of people i know kids are very young but I, I i think it'd be exhausting just traveling with children all the time you know i think it'd be exhausting with kids but i think even as an adult it'd be exhausting because yeah. as adults we also need connection i moved yeah. to a new condo two weeks before covid because we decided we should be on one floor so that, you know I had torn my meniscus on a trip and they thought, okay, fine. We need to be where we don't want to go to an old people's home too soon, you know? So we moved and then COVID came and I don't know my neighbors. And I'm finally getting to know a few neighbors. And I thought this was really a lonely year because if I was in my old house, I could have gone to the fence and could have, you know, walked great social distancing, but I didn't know anybody to, walked and you know you couldn't really get to know people because of you know we were all in our homes so even at this age i need community i need people and i have a big community globally online so i mean i've done a lot with that and that's been a great blessing but you still need the people you still need the neighbor that stops at your door and says hi you want to go for a walk you know that's part yeah. of life yeah absolutely Ruth, this is it is so rich to hear your, uh, you know, your conversations and responses and reflections, because I think for many of our audience, we are uh, international, it's International Schools podcast. So I think for myself, this is really the first time in my life that I really talk to somebody about this third culture kid. I've read about it. And you know, you hear about it, but I've kind of not I don't know. It, it hasn't really been something in, on my mind, but uh, listening to you, that's really some great provocations for my own reflections. And I'm sure many of our audience uh, will walk away uh, much richer by the provocations you've provided. And the book is Cross-Cultural Kids. It's the third edition and it's out. It's Third Culture Kids. Third Culture Kids. Yeah. Sorry. Third Culture Kids. Um, it's the Cross-Culture Kids is the website, right? Yes, that's the website, and there's a chapter in there on cross-cultural kids, um, and that's part of maybe I, I put that word out because everybody was fussing so much about who was the TCK, and nobody was allowed to be if they didn't do it a certain way, and I thought, but I want to see what the story is that's going on globally, 
And so if we could make a bigger paradigm, we could discuss it. But maybe the question is really third culture is this in-between space. So people that I've called cross-cultural kids still have an in-between space. If you're binational, you have an in-between space between. So maybe part of the discussion is, you know, should it be uh, educational TCK? Should it be like we're calling traditional TCK, who you were domestic TCK if you do it in your own country? So maybe we can get a more unified language um, because the concept is, well, what my interest is, there's something all these groups share. And then like you're already in several circles, you know, you've been a TCK officially a traditional, you're also a bicultural family and things like that. So how to find the paradigms to really look at this well would expedite all the research and the uh, wonderful things that are happening. I mean, there's huge amount of things, a fabulously interesting topic to me because it's it's not just personal, but it's it's an explanation for what we're seeing globally. And hopefully if we could enlarge the conversation and get out of some of the old paradigms, because all the old ways of measuring development and looking at all kinds of things were done with models that were pre-globalization, you know, Erickson's model. So how does that compare? But I will leave that to the next generation. My main job now is to help people behind me get a vision for what still needs to happen. And, and uh, there's some great, great things in the pipeline now. Fantastic. Great. Well, Ruth, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking. Hopefully we can get you back on the podcast because I'm sure John and me are going to think of another 10 questions right after we stop recording. But uh, well, where can people find you online? Are you active anywhere? LinkedIn, Twitter, website? I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, they can write me at rdvanrieken at aol.com. I know that's a prehistoric um, uh, address, but I'm prehistoric and I don't want to change it because it's what everybody knows. But it's Ruth David, rdvanrieken, my last name, at aol.com. And I like to hear from people because I think my main thing in life is trying to, um, I learn from who I hear from and I also like to encourage people or if they have a specific question i'm happy to try and field it i'm not a therapist i'm not a um psychologist but i'm a great cheerleader i uh, i believe that we can do it together so to our audience third culture kids growing up among the world's third edition and definitely uh get onto your whatever bookstore you use and get that book because I think it's uh, absolutely fascinating read. And Ruth, thank you for also being so generous and saying to our audience, uh, reach out to me. That's very kind. And we will put your coordinates on our show notes. Great. Ruth, thank you. For, uh, just absolutely fascinating and such a rich conversation. Dan and I now are going to come up with like, why didn't we ask her that? Why didn't we ask her this? <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back. I'm sitting here in my condo looking for stuff to do. We will have you back. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks. I appreciate it very much. And I appreciate those who are out there working with uh, TCKs in all the schools. You know, you have a huge job. You have a fabulous job. But also you are on the cusp of studying and thinking and seeing what's going on in the globe right in your school. So don't ever underestimate your own perceptions and your own visions and your own understandings of how we can do this better because we all need it. And it's a team job. Great. Thanks, Ruth. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye, you, Ruth. Ruth.